You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Hi, good morning, everyone. I'm Pamela, and I'll be reading from Acts chapter 21, verses 27, 30 to 32, as well as uh, chapter 22, verses 1 to 24. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering, to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. From you, For you will be a witness for him to everyone who you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned from 
when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow for, from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. These are the true words of the living God. Here's the other one. There we go. Thank you, Pam. That was uh, a long uh, scripture passage reading. And well done to you all for um, the stamina for listening through. Well, good uh, morning to you all, especially to those who are here for the first time. My name is Perch. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, to those of you who've been coming for a while, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Perch. Uh, you might not recognize me in a dark blue shirt. Um, I walked in this morning and the first three people said to me, they didn't even say hello, they just said, don't you normally wear a white shirt? So uh, this is me for the avoidance of doubt. Uh, it is lovely to be among God's people this morning. I want to tell you, well, I want to begin this morning by telling you a story of one of the greatest sleeps that I ever had. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. It was still in South Africa. It was about the time when the Harry Potter movie came out and this little small group that I was uh, leading, they were, everyone wanted to go to this new thing called Harry Potter. And uh, anyway, I ended up paying for the group. Very generous of me. Uh, anyway, we got there and uh, I just took one look at this and I thought, I'm going to sleep. This just looks boring. I'm just not into Harry Potter. Anyway, the one thing that I do remember from the movie is when, uh, and I had to look on YouTube yesterday just to confirm this. Uh, you can find this on YouTube. If, if you're too old to know about Harry Potter, um, Harry Potter was basically a long TikTok. Uh, never mind. Uh, for the youth here. Okay, so Harry Potter, to get into this magical land of uh, Hogwarts, had to run at a pillar, and it was called Platform Nine and Three Quarters. And uh, to get into this magical world, he had to run with his uh, train trolley between Platform 9 and Platform 10. Right in the middle, there was this pillar, this column, and he had to run at it. And when he hit it, he got enveloped into this whole new world. So if you've seen the movie, it's quite a striking scene. But if you haven't watched the movie, then uh, just bear that in mind. Of someone going from one reality to another by having to push through some kind of a portal. Uh, I'm going to get back to that image a little bit later. But let's look at our passage this morning. 
which is what I've titled it, Paul, the making of the man. Paul, the making of the man. Because here is the story of him coming to faith and entering into the Christian faith. And uh, just to catch you up if, again, for those who are here for the first time, uh, we have been going through Acts. And where we got to last week was uh, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, despite the advice and the counsel of his friends who said, don't go to Jerusalem, there's trouble waiting for you there. He insists, one thing leads to another, he finds himself in the temple, and that's where we drop in this morning. A mob forms, they accuse Paul of being against the temple, against the Jewish people, and then suddenly there's a riot, effectively a riot, and they are trying to kill him and tear him apart, and it actually says that, that they were trying to kill him. So then the, the, the tribune, who's the, sort of the Roman figure, came with the troops just to quell the riot, and that's pretty much the setting that uh, we have today. And Paul, on the steps of the temple, then tells his story to this rioting mob. Now, that's quite incredible. If uh, you were in South Africa and a mob or a gang got hold of you, would your instinct be to preach the gospel to them? Well, this was Paul's instinct. And that is part of the reason why he is in Jerusalem, is to attest and to speak to the people who live in Jerusalem, the Jews of Jerusalem, about Jesus Christ, because he's had such a radical experience of him. So that, in a nutshell, is the passage which we have before us in chapter 22. And as we talk through this dramatic autobiography of Paul telling about his own life experience, I'm going to approach it like this. I want us to ask the question, what does this say about God? And then I want us to ask another question, what is it saying to me? We have got the story of God working in this man's life. What does that say about God? And then what does that mean for me? I'm going to make three points today about Paul, Paul the making of the man. And the first point I want to say about Paul, based on this passage, is that uh, he is a man who is, well, he is the chosen right, wrong man. The chosen right, wrong man. And I use the word wrong in single inverted commas. First point is that Paul is the chosen right, wrong man. The second point I want to make is that it's personal. It's personal. Paul is the chosen right, wrong man. Number two, it's personal. And then number three, that there is suffering which comes from being obedient. There's suffering which comes from being obedient. But let's look at uh, our first point here, which is Paul, the chosen right, wrong man. Wrong in inverted commas. And I'm going to go, just for fun, in reverse order, and talk about why was Paul the wrong man? in inverted commas. Why was Paul the wrong man to be the one tasked with telling the people in Jerusalem about God? God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. We all know that about God. And Paul, and we know this from other places, says, you know, actually, I'm possibly the worst person to do this job. Actually, I could be one of the worst people to actually be entrusted with talking about a holy God. I'm the wrong man, in inverted commas. I'm the wrong man. Why would God choose his worst enemy to become his spokesman? Why would God choose his worst enemy to become his spokesman? And as he details his life story, again, picture it. It's a mob. There's a commotion. There's a riot. You get caned for that in Singapore, okay? It's all happening. The, the, the city is in uproar, and Paul is talking about his past and who he used to be. 
And he's explaining that actually, if you think about it, I'm should be the worst person to be the representative of a holy God. And he starts explaining why he is possibly the wrong person for this. Well, that's my point that I'm making, because if you look in verse 4, he's, he, he's confessing that he used to be a genocidal maniac who was undergoing religious persecution of an innocent group of people. He was murdering people just based on their ethnicity and their religious convictions. He says in verse 4, I persecuted this way, these Christians, to the death. It wasn't just torture. There was also torture, but he actually put people to death, binding and delivering to prison. So he locked people up, both men and women. He separated women from their children. He separated men from their wives. He tortured them. He put them in jail, and then he killed them. And he says, well, the question becomes, why would someone like that become a spokesperson for this righteous, holy God. He carries on about his story, and this is partway through verse 5. Verse 5, from them I received letters talking about the officials in uh, Jerusalem to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he was hunting out the Christians, and he was going to torture them and torment them. Uh, skip to verse 19. He makes this comment. He's talking to God. This is subsequently. And he says to the Lord, Lord, they themselves know that back in the day in the past, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. He is cruel, sadistic, and it's this chilling, chilling, chilling scene in the movie where he's getting his henchmen to kill Christians, and he's standing there watching over their clothes. Just imagine what kind of hatred was in his heart. This chilling, chilling murderer standing there, not saying a word, just watching, making sure people were put to death. So in many ways, wow, what a character to advocate and talk about a holy God. But here's the thing is all those pedigrees, backgrounds, actually made him the right person for the job. Because the job of talking about God and talking about Jesus Christ is that Jesus saves the worst of sinners. Jesus saves the worst of sinners. And actually, everything that made him the wrong person, in an ironic kind of way, actually made him the right person. Because on one level, you don't get worse than Paul, the sworn enemy of God, trying to destroy the thing that God was doing. And yet God turned him and used him to make the point that God is so gracious that he can save the worst of us. What does this say about God? It says he is gracious. He is kind. He is loving. He is powerful. He is, he is for you. It doesn't matter what you have done. He can turn you and save you and give you hope and give you a future. And Paul is the great example of being the wrong man and yet the absolutely right man for the message of grace, the extreme grace. What does it say about God? It says he's gracious. What does it say about you? It says you can feel... Like you're in good company in Christianity because it's full of a lot of other evil, dark, ugly, sinful, broken, hurting people. This is the company of the redeemed. 
And our leader, one of our leaders is Paul, this man who has this very checkered history. He is the right man. There's another reason why he's the right man is because he's the right man for that moment in history in that city at that exact time talking to these people at, let's call it about 60 AD, somewhere around there. He is the very right person to be talking to these people. What does this say about God? Well, it says God is the master chess strategist. He puts his pieces on the board exactly where he wants them to be. And so why is Paul the very right man, in a second sense, uh, to be speaking to these people on the steps at that occasion in Jerusalem all those years again? Well, first of all, he's a Jew. Verse 1, he speaks the Hebrew language. Suddenly, they would think they, they hear in their own Aramaic tongue. They, they hear Paul speaking in this Hebrew language. Verse 3, he says, I'm a Jew. I was brought up in this city, in Jerusalem. I'm a Jerusalemite. I'm one like you. God has matched the speaker to the audience. Uh, he was brought up under this man, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the star teacher. He was, it's like, you know, saying, uh, you know, Elon Musk, uh, you know, chose me for some engineering project or that's his credential. It's Gamaliel, this great teacher, chose me. I was trained and educated by him. Guys, I'm one of you. I know exactly how you think. I've, I've been in your shoes. He was the right man to be talking to these people. He was an expert. He was zealous. Uh, the strict manner of the law of our fathers, that's verse 3. I was zealous for God, as are all of you. He's identifying with these uh, folks. Uh, he will say in verse 5, there are even members, the way he's speaking in verse 5, he even says, as some of you in the council will remember me from those years ago. He was actually talking to people who knew him. He'd come back to Jerusalem many years later, but he's talking to them directly saying, hey, you guys knew me. Remember me. I'm Paul. I was under Gamaliel, the right man for the job, because he could totally identify with these people. What does this say about God? God puts his pieces exactly where he wants them to be. What does this say about you? Well, just think to your, just quickly go back, let your life flash before your eyes of who you are, where you've come from, where you were born how you grew up, your schooling, where you went, your relationships, the significant um, people who formed you, your, your past, your parents, everything. God has been superintending it so that he can put you in a situation now to match you with people who you can tell the message of Jesus to. He's going to put you in an industry. He's going to put you in a family. He's going to put you in a trade where you are the right person to be bringing a message because people will know you. And if you are ashamed of some things you've done in your life, it only strengthens the Christian message that God saves sinners and that He's gracious and that He forgives and that He's loved me. And now I can tell you who I have been brought to. Okay, let's move on. He was also chosen. He was clearly chosen. Uh, we can see in verse 8, this dramatic story, he was on his way. It was noon, the sun at its highest. He's saying, it wasn't the sun that I saw. It wasn't sunstroke. A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice. Verse 9, those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice. It, I mean, just picture it. There's this flash. If you're going to watch Oppenheimer, by the way, it starts on, opens in Singapore on the 21st of July. Uh, the Manhattan Project, the bomb, this huge flash of light, it was, that's what he saw. It was like this atomic power. Bam! And uh, 
His light blinds him. And then he hears a voice. And the voice speaks to him. But strangely, everyone doesn't hear what he is hearing. So there's some strange things going on here. It's very dramatic. A bit later, this man Ananias comes to explain some things to him. In verse 13, he says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And then, bingo, he gets healed and he gets his sight. As this man, who's also one of his enemies, comes and finds him somehow in the middle of Damascus in some room somewhere, it's this incredible sense of God working around the clock in an overtime in quite an extraordinary way. And then uh, Ananias goes on to say in verse 14, God is saying to you that uh, he's appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. This is very dramatic. This is very dramatic. Paul is clearly chosen. He's the right man for the job. He has been chosen by God. What does this say about God? It says this, God initiates. God initiates. God initiates. What does this say about you? Well, if you are someone exploring the Christian faith, what you need to know about our God is that He initiates. You might not be looking for Him, but He is coming to find you. If it was up to you, you are finished, but He is coming to find you. He is coming to find you. Our God is an, an initiator. It might not be as dramatic as this, and that's most Christians' testimony, but every Christian can testify that it was God who made the first move. It was God who hunts us down. It's God who initiates. It's God who comes to find us. It's an extension of His grace. No matter how bad you are, or what you've done, or how broken you are, it is God who initiates. Okay, so that's point number one, the chosen right, wrong man. Second point is that it's personal. It's personal. Okay, so there you are, walking down the road, and suddenly this nuclear atomic flash jumps up before you. It's so bright that it blinds you. You might be tempted to ask, what was that? What was that? But what does Paul say? Who is that? Many people are asking, what is God? Or, or is he an energy? Is he a force? Is he a power? Is he a moral code? Many people are asking what questions. But what Paul says here is, who, who, who are you? Who are you, Lord? He identifies God as a person. What does this say about God? Not only does he initiate, not only is he gracious, but he is a person. He wants to deal with you personally. He wants to draw you into a relationship with him. He appears to you personally. He is a person. He loves you personally. He wants to fellowship with you personally. And this was uh, the reality which struck Paul. Oh, you are a real person who is now close, who is resurrected, who is alive, but who is no longer clothed in flesh, but is clothed in this extraordinary glory and light. Who are you, Lord? It's the most wonderful question. It presupposes that God is personal. What does this say to you? Please, can your Christianity be a personal experience of a personal God? It's not about rules or following some good conduct program or some self-improvement plan. 
It is a relationship with a person. That is how Paul is invited in here. And uh, to help us along on this point, I'm going to read you uh, two quotes uh, by two of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer and then Roger Scruton. And uh, A.W. Tozer says this, God is a person. And in the deep of his mighty nature, he thinks, wills, enjoys, feels, loves, desires, and suffers as any other person may. In making himself known to us, he stays by the familiar pattern of personality. He communicates with us through the avenues of our minds and our wills and our emotions, the continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed person is the throbbing heart of the New Testament. And then Roger Scruton says this, people who are looking for God are not looking for the proof of God's existence. They're not looking for arguments, but for a personal encounter which occurs in this life, but which also in some way reaches beyond this life. Those who claim to have found God always write or speak in those terms as having found the intimacy of a personal encounter and a moment of trust. Human beings desire to throw in their lot with something, to cease to be cast out, rejected, mere individuals, but to belong. Durkheim pointed out that you don't merely believe a religion, but more importantly, you belong to it. And the heartbeat of Christianity is belonging, and the heartbeat of belonging is interpersonal, and the heartbeat of the interpersonal is person to person. It's fellowship. How does God reveal himself here? He reveals himself as person. Who are you, Lord? That's the first thing I want to say about it's personal. The second thing I want to say about it's personal is this incredible insight that Paul gets here was get given by God in verse 7, if you can just train your mind there for a moment. Verse 7, it says this, I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, you don't have to be demure in church. If you want to say something out loud, you can. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? me? Then if you jump to verse 8, and I answered the who question, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you are persecuting. Paul was persecuting people. Jesus pitches up and says, Paul, you're persecuting me. That is profound beyond measure. And uh, with a bit of luck, we'll be able to explain this. You persecute the Christians, you're persecuting Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine with me, if you get your left hand and your right hand and you interlock your fingers like I'm doing, uh, with great skill with a microphone in my hand. Okay. You can see my fingers like this. Now, if one of you got a cane and came and whacked my two hands interlocking, which one would hurt more, the left hand or the right hand? Or would only the left hand hurt or would only the right hand hurt? Both would. This is a picture of people who are in Christ. What he's saying here is that if you persecute a Christian, you're persecuting me. And here's why. Because I am in the Christian. Do you know why? 
Because the Christian is in me. One of the best ways you can understand Christianity is that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are placed into Christ. You are in Christ. And it's this moment of extreme revelation that then governs the rest of Paul's theology and his thought life and explanation when he starts writing the New Testament about the nature of salvation. And he uses this phrase up 10 times. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. And the origin of this idea comes here when Jesus says, you persecute Christians, you persecute me, because I'm in the Christian and the Christian is in me. You are in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. You belong. You're in a person. Let's just play with this idea and, and ripple out the ramifications. And I'm here speaking to people who uh, are not yet in the Christian faith. You've got sin. You've got wrongdoing. You're a man like Paul who's broken and done dastardly deeds and wickedness and hatred against God and rebellion and you've hurt people and you're a broken person and you're in pain and you've caused pain to other people. You've got a whole lot of wrongdoing to give account for. It's so bad that it's a capital offense. It earns you and deserves you the death penalty by a righteous God. But if you accept Christ... You can put your sin into Christ. And Christ was the one on the cross who had his body broken in justice, in punishment, in holy wrath. If you're in him, then your sin is in him too. And the righteous justice of God has fallen on Christ. Therefore, it's fallen on you too. You have had your sins paid for in Christ. If you're in Christ... Christ is the one who rose from the dead. If you're in him, you too have risen from the dead. You're alive. You're made new. If you're in him. If you're in him. Think about that for a moment. The best way to understand Christianity is that you are in Jesus Christ. You can now relate to the Father, God, as a child. Because you're in His Son. You're in His favorite Son. How much does God love Jesus? If you're in Christ, He loves you as much as He loves Jesus. Go back to Harry Potter. You've got to pass from one realm into another. And the invitation open to you, if you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, is that you can be in Him. And He wants to receive you. And faith and repentance, admitting you are wrong, confessing He is right, and admitting that He has died for you and lived for you and resurrected for you, you need to accept His invitation to receive you into Him. And if you do, He will pull you, as if you were Harry Potter, into His kingdom through a membrane so that you can enter his kingdom of life and joy and eternity. <coughs> this is the good news of Christianity. Uh, I want to throw this idea in because I did feel this during the week. Sexuality is one of the ideas which flows from this idea. Certainly as Paul then lives out his Christian experience, where 
the act of sexuality where the two become one is demonstrative, it's indicative, it's figurative of people becoming one with Christ in an irreversible covenant with Him. There are so many implications which roll out from this idea of being in Him. And so if you're struggling with your sexuality this morning, that is the paradigm. That is the controlling idea. One covenant partner for all time where you can experience and find the depths of intimacy. I just wanted to throw that in there. Okay, I have four more minutes to give you point number three, which is, uh, as you uh, recall, uh, suffering for being obedient. Suffering for being obedient. Well, let's uh, break this down into two legs. Um, there's obedience and then there's suffering. There's a suffering that comes from being obedient. There's a suffering that comes from uh, you being dumb and making stupid decisions. But there's also a suffering which comes from obedience. And this is the suffering which comes from obedience. Because Paul, just to remind you, the big picture here, feels like God has said to him, get yourself to Jerusalem. There's going to be danger. He obeys. And sure enough, he's now suffering. They're wanting to rip him apart. The end of the story, he's about to get spread out to be flogged, whipped, flagellated. Uh, that's, not, that's not a pretty picture. He was suffering for being obedient. So let's look at some acts of obedience here. Verse 10. Again, you meet Jesus. There's this bright light. You enter Christ. You enter into Christ. What's the first thing you say? Well, if you're Paul, what do you say? In verse 10, what shall I do? What does it say about God? It says uh, God also has expectations of us that now that we're in him, there are things for us to do. What does it say about you? I don't know. If you're in him, what is he asking you to do? What is he asking you to do? And are you not doing it because you're afraid you're going to suffer? Well, the weight of the passage this morning is no. Suffering that comes from obedience is a good thing. If you're in him and if you are obeying and following him, what shall I do? And the Lord said, this is in mid-verse mid 10, rise and go into Damascus and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. There you'll be told all that's appointed for you to do. Isn't it great that God has got appointments for you? He's got appointments. He's got tasks. He's got assigned things for you to do and to be. You don't own your life anymore. It's His. Remember, you made that deal. You died to yourself so that you could be in Him. And now that He wants to live through you, He wants to live through you because you're in Him and He's in you. He wants to now live out through you. What are the appointed tasks that God has for you? There's a question which jumps out from this text. Jump to verse 13. Wait, hang on. That's verse 15. So 46-year-old eyes uh, let you down every now and again. Verse 15. You will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. One of the things Paul was asked to do was to be a witness. What does that say about God? God loves it when his people witness to him. I think you can include yourself in that. To be a witness Remember, you're the right person for the task wherever God has planted you, despite all your wrongdoing. You're the right person. Be a witness for Him. Be a witness for the light. By the way, in this passage, those who are blinded by sin cannot see, and those who are blinded by light end up seeing. It's a lovely paradox. Another paradox in this passage is those who are without chains are actually in bondage, and those who are in chains are actually free. You need to testify to that. Uh, verse 16, um, this comes with a trigger warning. 
you can laugh sometimes. Okay, this one comes with a trigger warning. Verse 16 says, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Part of Christian obedience is baptism. Part of Christian obedience is baptism. And then in verse 21, he gets his instructions. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. I want to make one last point and then we'll call it a day. God leads you. He guides you. He's got appointments for you. He's got a plan for you. He wants to direct you, govern your ways. He wants to send you into difficulties and dangers sometimes. That's very clear from the passage. You agree? But sometimes he wants you to run from danger. Because Paul in verse 17 recounts his past. He's been to Jerusalem before as a Christian. Verse 17 he says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And saw him. He sees Jesus a second time. And Jesus said to him, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. Because they will not accept your testimony about me. God is sovereign. You need to trust him. Can you see here in this account, one time, go into trouble. Obey and you're going to suffer. Another time, get out of here. Don't go into trouble. I'm going to do a whole bunch of other things for you. Why I'm making this point is that you can trust him. You can trust him. You see, because... Human memory is, I'm in trouble, I'm obeying you, I'm suffering, this is not comfortable, why do you always do this to me? Why do you always do this to me? But we conveniently forget all the times that he's steered us out of trouble and danger and helped us. No, I don't always do that to you. Sometimes I say, get out of Jerusalem. Here's the thing, who's living? Are you dead and allowing him to lead you and live through you? Or are you the pilot? Are you the captain? Are you the master of your fate and the captain of your soul? Are you the one who's calling the shots? Or are you in utter, complete, total subservience to the king who's included you into him, who you are now in, who you now live in, who's given you life, who's been gracious to you and loved you and has lavished the riches of the heavens upon you that you will live for all eternity? You can trust him. And if he's asking you to do a difficult thing, he's done the most difficult thing for you. You can trust him. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for loving us, for accepting us, for including us into you and into your kingdom. Thank you for putting us into Christ. Thank you for including us into this incredible kingdom. Thank you for taking the scales off our eyes and helping us see you for who you are. Thank you for being personal with us, gracious, kind, loving, and good. Thank you for forgiving us our sins. And if there are people here today who are outside the kingdom of Jesus, who are not in him, he's calling you. He's calling you today. He's saying you can put your faith in him.
He wants to save you from your sins. doesn't matter how wicked you've been or what bad things you've done. He wants to rescue you from yourself. He wants to save you. He wants to draw you into his paradigm, into his eternity, into his things, into his relationship with the Father. He's died for you. He's risen for you. And he's calling out to you today. Won't you put your faith in him? Won't you repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ? You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.